The full power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is contained in the Book of Mormon, period. Remember this declaration by Jesus himself. Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. And in the last days, neither your heart nor your faith will fail you. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 93 of the Book of Mormon podcast. As always, you have Kevin and Shelby here, and we are discussing Alma chapter 3. I think I already said that. I feel like I just repeated myself for some reason, but we're in Alma chapter 3, and we're going to be in Alma chapter 4 today too. So we're going to cover two chapters, and you'll see why (laughs) in just a second. But just a little recap from last week where we ended the we ended with a with a big old war and a lot of people dying and so moving into chapter three this is kind of the aftermath of the war and chapter three is a lot of um fulfillment of prophecy and abridgment and so we're gonna i would say an abridgment and kevin has some thoughts on that too but we're kind of coming in here figuring out what happens after to all the people who survived the war. So, Kev, what were some thoughts you had in the first few verses as we come into Alma 3? Yeah, diving in Mm -hmm. to chapter 3. So, first things first, the... They go about, the Nephites do, uh, those who were not slain, in the war, they go about burying their dead. And once they do that, they return to, to their lands, to their houses, their wives and their children in verse one and verse two, it makes, it mentions that many women and children had been slain with the sword and also many of their flocks and their herds and also many of their fields of grain were destroyed for they were trodden down by the hosts of men. And it, you know, that's really setting the scene for uh, this war-torn country mm-hmm. that Zarahemla has become because of all of this, this strife and warfare. And the Amlicites, although they, they, it says in verse three, and now many of the Lamanites and the Amlicites who had been slain upon the banks uh, of the river Sidon, cast into the waters of Sidon. Behold, their bones are in the depths of the sea, and they are many. Hmm. It's interesting that it mentions that in the next chapter, we come back to the river Sidon. Something else completely different happens in those waters. Little uh, preview. And, but apparently, the Amlicites, you know, they continue to live among the Nephites. Right, because there's some of those that survived as well. I mean, right. some Nephites survived and some Amlicites survived. The Amlicites took a harder hit than the Nephites, right? And maybe they're not living among one another like, okay, this house is a Nephite and then the very next house is an Amlicite. So, yeah. But they are among one another in that they're in the land roundabout. Right. And this part of the chapter and part of the episode we get back to this mark that we've read about before we read about it back in second nephi right Mm -hmm. that the lamanites had a mark placed upon them and then also a curse and the two are connected but we know from not only from the scriptures But also, um, you know, elaboration by uh, prophets and apostles in these days that the mark or rather uh, a dark skin color that was upon the the Lamanites is not the curse. The -hmm. curse is being separated from God, the presence of God, because of disobedience. And in the scriptures... Well, let's read it first. 
Mm-hmm. Let's read it so those who maybe haven't read know what we're talking about here. It says in verse 4, And the Amosites were distinguished from the Nephites, for they had marked themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites. So they they marked themselves similar to the Lamanites. Nevertheless, they had not shorn their heads like into the Lamanites. So the difference between uh, the Lamanites and the Amlicites at this point, because remember they had joined together in the battle before, um, the Lamanites do not have hair and the Amlicites have hair, but they all have red marks in their foreheads. Um, and something I wanted to touch on, I do want to get back to the mark and stuff and mm-hmm. the curse. We'll get there for sure. But in the student manual, it says the Amosites changed their appearance to look like the Lamanites. Many Latter-day Saints today feel pressured to follow the dress trends of the world. Extremes in clothing and appearance serve to distinguish the disobedient from the disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who follow these worldly trends display the prophet or just disobey the prophet and instead follow the fads of the world. And I, I bring that up. Not that I want to be talking about modesty here and fads and trends of the world, but I thought it was really interesting that the Book of Mormon student manual for seminaries and institutes decided to talk about that from that verse. And it's something I wouldn't have made the connection of. I would have made the connection of more like, oh, they wanted to be like them. They wanted to aspire to become like them. They were influenced by by them, the Lamanites, you know, um, I would have taken more of like a role model approach, like be careful who you follow type thing, but they went into modesty and, and appearance and stuff. And so I just thought that was interesting to note that the prophets, you know, who put together the, the student manuals thought that that was important to know, to note the connection. So the, my takeaway from that is, Just be sure (laughs) that um, we're always following the prophet and we're listening to Jesus Christ and what he wants for us, not what the world deems worthy, because that's always changing. (laughs) Always. I mean, to be honest, some uh, fashion trends repeat themselves. It's a thing, you know, so you see it come and go and come and go. It's always changing, but the Lord is always constant. Yeah, that is interesting. That's an interesting take mm-hmm. um, on that verse of scripture. And it is important to to mention, and it's reemphasized later, that the Amlicites, they marked themselves. Mm-hmm. So this mark is not a mark that came upon them by any, you know, supernatural means. It, it was a it was a, a mark that they chose to uh, place upon themselves to really separate themselves from the Nephites because remember that the the mark that was placed upon the Lamanites was for the purpose of uh, of course distinguishing the Lamanites from the Nephites but also to avoid the Nephites mingling their seed with the Lamanites. Mm-hmm. Right, um, which goes back into Old Testament times. You know, God places, uh, he separates people uh, through, you know, his own uh, means, you know, through his, his power uh, as an omniscient being. And the express purpose for that is to avoid uh, righteous posterity to be led away by an unrighteous, unbelieving people. So something I want to point out in verse five, Mm -hmm. if I can, it says, now the heads of the Lamanites were shorn and they were naked, save it were the skin, which is girded about their loins and also their armor, which is girded about with their bows, arrows, blah, blah. But we know from the previous verse in verse four, that the Amalekites decided not to shave their heads. Basically that's what shorn means. They didn't, you know, their right. hair was, was Lamanite's hair was gone. Amosites was not. And I had listened to our friend Jared mm-hmm. <laughs> on this topic of Alma 3. And he talks about how hair in the day, 
back in the day, you know, Old Testament times, and now in this time of the Nephites and Amosites, had a significance or a symbol of power, power and authority, and that power and authority of God. Like, and so when the Lamanites shave their heads, they're rejecting the power and authority of God. Um, and I was talking to my friend Alyssa about this this weekend, and I hadn't even told her, and I was going this direction, but we can make an Old Testament connection to Sam's, Samson. I was his name wrong. We can make a connection to him and his long hair that he had. It was power and authority from God. And so it was just interesting to make that connection here and see that in the scriptures um, still. I mean, nowadays, and if you think about it, we still love our hair today. Like people, there's people who make a living off of doing hair, right. you know? So. But what's the connection there with the Amlocytes? I mean, so they, they, they. I thought about that. They, cause they didn't shave their hair. So maybe there's still hope there, you know? Um, they didn't completely reject all of it. They just decided to mark themselves, you know, but didn't want to necessarily be cut off forever. I thought of something like that, maybe. Hmm. Interesting. Because um, the Lamanites, I mean, this is, we've said it before, the word eternal hatred. Right. They, they reject it all. They don't want help. Right. right. And we do know that some of them do repent. But um, it's just interesting. That was my take on the hair with the amylocytes. Okay. Did you have any insights while I was talking? No, not really. I mean, I just That's thought, okay. I thought in terms of the you know, them keeping their hair, maybe that's even, I, I don't know, but maybe it's like their vanity of saying oh. like, we'll, we'll, we're going to keep our hair because we, we believe that we are in the right. I mean, remember they, mm. they're not necessarily an atheist faction. Um, they just believed a different thing than the Nephites, you know, they, they, they want to do, they, they want to have priestcraft. They, well, and they, yeah, they wanted a king too. They wanted a king. They wanted Started to. Started it all in the first yeah. place. So I think you're right. Like it's, it's, they definitely, there is an intention there to keep their hair mm -hmm. and, but it may not be. Uh, For what we see as like power and authority symbol. Well, it could be, but theirs is a is a vain hope mm -hmm. like a vain like right. pride uh, as opposed to well maybe there's some hope for them to be redeemed not that they couldn't be redeemed anybody could be redeemed but anyway so that's that's interesting those are some things to study and and ponder right the the if i may the chapter then goes into <clears throat> kind of elaborating on the the mark that was placed upon the Lamanites. So it talks about first the the, the mark that the Amalekites marked themselves with. Which was the mark in the forehead. Right, the red, red mark in the forehead. And kind of as an aside, whoever is writing, whether it be Mormon uh, or someone else, says, and the skins of the Lamanites were dark, um, which... You know, in the previous verse, it talks about the skin, which was girded about their loins. Um, I assume it's not talking about their clothing, <laughs> but it was interesting that in the previous verse, it talks about the skin around their loins, meaning their, their clothing. And then in verse six, it says the skins of the Lamanites were dark. Again, I don't think it's talking about the clothing, but it is interesting that they're right next to one another. We do know, though, for a fact that the Lamanites did have dark skin. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to get away from that. It was just interesting. Uh, for some reason, I caught on that. And it says, according to the mark, which was set upon them, uh, upon their fathers, rather, which was a curse upon them, because of their transgression and their rebellion against their brethren who consisted of Nephi, Jacob, Joseph, and Sam, who were just and holy men. 
So verse six kind of in implies that the the dark skin, which was a mark upon their fathers, was a curse. However, as we read into verses seven and eight and nine, I'm just going to read them in verse seven. And their brethren sought to destroy them. So the, the Lamanites, Laman and Lamuel sought to destroy their holy brethren. Therefore, they were cursed. And the Lord God set a mark upon them, yea, upon Laman and Lamuel, and also the sons of Ishmael and the Ishmaelitish women. And this was done that their seed might be distinguished from the seed of their brethren, that thereby the Lord God might preserve his people, that they might not mix and believe in incorrect traditions, which would prove to their destruction. So this is all catching up from what I said earlier. It's it's the scriptures backing up what I said, or rather two witnesses, right? So one thing I did want to clarify, because in six, it looks like the mark, it's easy to think that the mark of the dark skin is the curse, the way that it's worded. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, their skin was dark according to the mark, which was set on their fathers, which was a curse. So it's easy to associate the two. But as you read further, you see, like you had just read in verse seven, I just want to point this off, that it's two different things. Therefore, they were cursed and, and the Lord God set a mark upon them. So, and the Lord God set a mark upon them. Two different things, right? The cursing was the loss of the presence of God and all of that, right? But the mark was distinguished, which was their dark skin. Right. And it's, you know, in the grammar there in verse seven, they were cursed, semicolon. So, right. Not the end of the sentence, but um, something else needed to be added. And the Lord God set a mark upon them. Mm -hmm. So, and then in verse eight, we learn why. Correct. That's what Kevin read. So, their seed was distinguished, as we said before, to, to not mix together and all that things, all the things. <laughs> and so, we know why God uh, cursed them, it was for their disobedience the rejection of, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught through prophets, Nephi, Jacob, Joseph, and Sam. Mm -hmm. And then we also know uh, that it's to help the two groups of people um, not intermingle. And I mean, it, it elaborate, it goes on in verse nine saying whoever did mingle his seed with that of the Lamanites, did bring the same curse upon his seed. Not AKA why the Amlicites are being yes. cursed now. Yes. Yeah. It's not that the skin is the curse and that's being brought upon uh, their seed. It's th this is why it's so important that children are raised in righteous God-fearing families by, by parents who fear God and, and do love the Lord is because if, the, if parents don't teach their children these things, a curse, even separation from God, will come upon them because mm -hmm. they'll have no connection to God. Right. It's, it's, a great, it's a great responsibility of parents to do this. And so... Uh, therefore, in verse 10, whoever suffered uh, himself to be led away by the Lamanites was called under that head, and there was a mark set upon him. And I'll just keep going in verse 11. Unless I just want to say to the mark set upon them, the Amlicites did that themselves with the red right. in their forehead. So it wasn't that their skin color just magically changed. Right. It was, and we mark. get to that. There's, yeah. it's down I, in verse 13. I was just giving a preview. Yeah, <laughs> I, we've just said it like so many times that by the time we get to the the scripture, it's going to be like, yeah, we know, but but it's important because I think it's a doc. It's something that's misunderstood, right, in the church, and it's been talked a lot, a, a lot about. It's been 
Woo, shall we get your words together? It's been talked about a lot more recently, I feel like. The distinguishing. Right. Just because of all the things that are happening in the world. Mm-hmm. But anyway, keep going. I mean, the at the end of the day, I remember I, I said this in the episode when we discussed the the curse and the mark that was placed upon the Lamanites back in Second Nephi. You know, this is Shelby and I, we are not we really try, and I know I do, to not flinch from difficult doctrine or difficult things Mm. that show up in the scriptures however this is not a difficult doctrine and you could say kevin that's because you're white right yeah that's why it's not difficult for you um that's very presumptuous to think because i could have uh concerns a lot of people do um about all kinds of uh, church history and doctrines that are difficult and um, has nothing to do with race. It has to do with my love for my fellow man and the desire for everyone to come into Christ. So uh, nevertheless, you know, we, we go on to talk about in, in these verses it impresses upon us the importance of not following false traditions. Mm -hmm. That's what all of this is really about. Um, In verse 11, it came to pass that whosoever would not believe in the tradition of the Lamanites, but believed those records which were brought out of the land of Jerusalem and also in the tradition of their fathers, which were correct, who believed in the commandments of God and kept them, were called the Nephites right? People of Nephi. And um, those who have kept the records, which are true of their people, and also the people uh, from that. Interesting. So I think I skipped something important. So they were called Nephites, or the people of Nephi from that time forth. And in verse 12, and it is they, ah, Mm -hmm. who have kept the records, which are true, of their people. And also the people of the Lamanites. The records of the people of Nephi and Lamanites. Okay, gotcha. Not that the Lamanites are keeping records right. that are true, but the the records that the Nephites keep are true of the people of the Lamanites. Okay. That's how I understand it. It also made me think, um, when it talks about the tradition of the Lamanites, it was back in Mosiah chapter 12 when it describes, you know, the traditions of the Lamanites, which are this. And it goes on to say that, you know, Laman and Lamuel were just uh, a couple good old boys and their mean brother Nephi uh, took everything from them and their rotten dad, Lehi, you know, led them foolishly out into the wilderness. And then, you know, just all this stuff, right? And now they have to suffer. And now they have to suffer because of, you know, the iniquity, supposed iniquity of their father and their brothers and their desire for power, you know, and all this stuff. So the, those are the traditions uh, of the Lamanites. Those who believe in the records or the scriptures, um, they are the Nephites. They're the Lord's people. And in verse 13, we finally come here and it says, now we will return again to the Amlicites. <laughs> so back to the Amlicites. For they also had a mark set upon them. Yea, they set the mark upon themselves. Yea, even a mark of red upon their foreheads. And I just, of course, wrote agency. Mm-hmm. Um, not using it correctly, but they did use it. Um, and that, that them doing that, Actually, it said in 14, thus the word of God is fulfilled, for these are the words which he said to Nephi. So he prophesied to Nephi the um, the following. Behold, the Lamanites have I cursed, and I will set a mark on them, that they and their seed may be separated from thee and thy seed. 
from this time henceforth and forever, except they repent of their wickedness and turn to me that I may have mercy upon them. So it's a fulfillment, the word of God being fulfilled there with that marking. Um, and then I, again, it, it's, it, goes, it keeps going back to the mark and it's very repetitive. And it, I think because the Lord and Mormon, you know, writing this, they know it's expedient that we should understand these things. Um, saying that the mark is set upon them, uh, upon him that mingleth his seed. I read that wrong. And again, I will set a mark upon him that mingleth his seed with thy brother and that they may be cursed also, which we spoke about earlier. And he said, and again, in 16, I will set a mark upon him that fighteth against thee and thy seed. So once again, he is being clear about this, this mark and the purpose of it. What I love, and this is where we can finally depart from the cursing and the marking, the cursing and the marking, and really focus on like, just like you asked last week, Shelm, where, where's Christ. the Savior in all of this? Yep, yep. And of course, He's in all of it, but um, this fulfillment of prophecy shows that the Lord keeps His promises. And yesterday in testimony meeting, I thought and, and was impressed to get up and bear my testimony that, that, that I know and I do know that God keeps his promises. And I said, it seems that sometimes it's for good or for bad. Like if you, if you, if you break a covenant, he keeps the promise that he's going to smite you. <laughs> Right. Or that he's going to cut you off or just lose that blessing associated with the commandment. Right. Yeah. Being cut off. Right. And uh, but it's actually always good because if we use our agency correctly and we list to the spirit of God mm -hmm. as opposed to another spirit, which we'll get to shortly, um, then we know that we will receive the wages allotted to us. I know I'm really foreshadowing, really kind of foreshadowing at the end of the chapter, but if you've already read the chapter, as we always invite you to do before listening to this episode, you'll know where I'm going with that. Now, in verse 18, the Amlicites knew not that they were fulfilling the words of God, <laughs> right? Yeah. by marking themselves and, and coming out in open rebellion against God. And I just love back from Isaiah when he calls, he says, Oh, Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, right? The Assyrians were enemies of Israel in mm -hmm. ancient times. And they, although they were an enemy uh, of Israel, they were actually an instrument in the hands of God to stir up his people to remembrance of all that they were supposed to be doing. And so I think that's just, that's attributing the, the wisdom of God. So where do we go from here? Well, because there is another battle that does come to pass we can you know i don't want to i don't want to say i'll gloss over it but the lamanites uh they another army and the amlicites right uh, yes not many days after the battle which was fought in the land of zarahemla by the lamanites and the amlicites there was another army of the lamanites that came in upon the people of nephi in the same place where the first army met the Amlicites. Not sure the Amlicites were doing the fighting uh, in the second battle. We know that the, the Lamanites were. Um, okay. But Alma, as it turns out, he was wounded from that earlier battle. Because remember, he was right there in the midst of everything. He uh, did not personally go up to battle. But he did send an adequate number up against the Lamanites, and they drove them out of the border of their land. 
And in verse 25, all these things were done, yea, and all these wars and contentions were commenced and ended. So they started and they ended in the first year, excuse fifth. me, fifth, <laughs> fifth year of the reign of the judges. And in, in the last two verses, this is where Alma, he really starts to, to see and I, you know, what I think is that because he wasn't in that, that final battle, mm-hmm. what, what do you think he was doing laid up, wounded, recovering from his injuries? What was he doing during that time, Sheldon? Uh, thinking about, <laughs> thinking about a lot of things. <laughs> sure. But I mean, that it's a lot to process. And so you can tell where his thoughts go in these last two verses. Right. So I think that's what answers your question. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah. I don't, I don't think we have to assume what he was thinking about yeah. because it's written down in holy writ <laughs> for us to know. Right. You tried to trick me, <laughs> but I answered what you wanted. I wasn't trying to trick you. I was, I was asking an inspired question. <laughs> he, he goes on to say in one year, were thousands and tens of thousands of souls sent to the eternal world that they might reap their rewards according to their works, whether they were good or whether they were bad, to reap eternal happiness or eternal misery according to the spirit which they listed to obey, whether it be good, a good spirit or a bad one. And he says, for every man receiveth wages of him who he listeth to obey. And this, according to the, the words of the spirit of prophecy. Therefore, let it be according to the truth. And thus ended the fifth year of the reign of the judges. So in my interpretation of those last words, you know, it shows that Alma, he's, he's seen all of this uh, temporal misery, and it was really brought on by spiritual issues and isaiah saw that too he saw that the uh, the issues in israel in his society were really caused by pride and other spiritual deficiencies of the people because they listed not and obeyed not to the spirit of uh, revelation and prophecy right? Meaning they didn't listen or follow the prophet. Mm -hmm. They decided to do their own thing. They decided to be puffed up in their pride. Right. And consequently, or I should say subsequently, meaning in the next chapter, uh, that he was on to something because that's exactly what starts to happen as the wars end, the people, the pride cycle ramps back up. Which brings us into Alma 4. Buckle up. No, just kidding. <laughs> we're ready. Okay, so Alma 4. We're, we're now in the sixth year of the reign of the judges. And the people are, are greatly afflicted for the loss. And like Kevin said earlier, um, it was kind of like a war-torn land still. They they were rebuilding. You know, they, they had lost flocks and herds and and people because of these great afflictions. And so let's start in verse three. Let's Could we, I know we didn't read the chapter heading of chapter three, but can we read the chapter heading of you verse? Mean of chapter four? Uh, no, what? we we didn't read the chapter heading of chapter three. We just dove right in. Oh, okay. But I'd like us to read this chapter heading. Go ahead. Just because it's, it's really... It's really wonderful. It says, Alma baptizes thousands of converts. Iniquity enters the church, and the church's progress is hindered. Uh, this guy, Nefiha, <laughs> how would you say that name? Nephi Ha. Nephi I don't know. Is appointed chief judge. Alma as high priest devotes himself to the ministry. You can kind of see that like 
it's kind of a linear thing. You know, he, he baptizes thousands of converts, um, you know, as a, as a missionary. I mean, imagine baptizing thousands of people and they're not just people, they're converts. Like I know we call anybody who gets baptized as an adult or past, you know, eight years old as a child of record or whatever. Um, they're a convert, but I see this as like those who really were converted to the Lord. They chose to take that covenant upon themselves. So that's got to be like, the, you know, Alma's in the spiritual high and yet iniquity enters the church and he makes decisions based on revelation that comes to him. So sorry, I know it was a little bit of a tangent and we'll get there, of course, but I just love that chapter heading. <clears throat> well, before we get to Alma going out and baptizing people, <laughs> let's bring him back for just a second. <laughs> I love Kevin's enthusiasm, but there are some verses before that. And um, I wanted to read verse three. It says, and so great were the afflictions, because we I just talked about this, that every soul had cause to mourn, and they that believed that it was the judgments of God sent upon them, and they, I'm sorry, and they believed that it was the judgments of God sent upon them because of their wickedness and abominations. Therefore, they were awakened to a, rem a remembrance of their duty. So this, this battle, all these things that had been happening in the fifth year and losing people and flocks and herds and, and everything, it awakened them to remembrance of their duty. It, it did serve a purpose. And so as a result of that awakening, um, it, in verse 4, they begin to establish the church more fully. And many were baptized in the waters of Sidon, and they were joined to the church of God. And that's by, they were baptized by Alma. And you had hinted at earlier in, ver, in Alma chapter 3, in the river of Sidon, all the Lamanites and Amalekites' bodies were just washed away. But now, in the sixth year, people are being baptized in those waters. So that, cause that was the connection you were hoping to make, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember you hinted at it. So, and they were baptized by the hand of Alma, um, who's the high priest over the land. So Kevin really likes that. He just did a little, like, I don't know how you would describe that. A fist pump. A fist pump. Yeah. There you go. Um, so that's the sixth year. And then it goes to the seventh year of the reign of the judges. And in the seventh year, it says, there were about 3,500 souls that united themselves to the church of God and were baptized. And then that ends the seventh year. And then we get into the eighth year. And this is where Kevin was hinting at, or said earlier in, in the heading two, that uh, pride and because they're being so blessed for being obedient um a lot of how do you say that they have a lot of wealthy possessions here worldly wealthy possessions and and that's a result of a bunch of people coming into christ right i mean you yes. got yeah like you get three thousand over three thousand people in being, one year joining uh the church in one year that's a lot of people who are going to receive blessings yeah and they, and they do prosper, it says, but the problem is that that happens in like six and seven years, right? And then come the eighth year, they're beginning to get proud because of it. Right. Um, and that's where the pride comes in. And it says at the end of verse six, in all these things, meaning their fine linen, flocks, herds, gold, silver, many precious things, all these things, they were lifted up in the pride of their eyes, and they begin to wear very costly apparel. And this makes Alma not happy. <laughs> um, it was a cause of affliction to Alma. Um, and he was grieved because of the wickedness among the people. Right? Right. And so... Um, it's just sad when you start to see that happening. I want to say a great companion study material for this chapter is President Benson's 
beware of pride talk. Mm. And we've brought it up before. We've we even um, went kind of deep into it. Uh, I can't remember if it was in the conference talk podcast that we did that or in the Book of Mormon podcast one, but we have talked about it before. And I linked a lot of things in the next few verses over to beware of pride. Mm. And I would definitely invite everyone to go and read that talk by Esther Schaff Benson, uh, April 1989. I'm going to, oh, actually, I have it right here. Uh, <laughs> yes, April General Conference 1989, very first talk of the conference. Definitely go and read this chapter, read that talk. You'll have incredible insights and you'll learn a lot of strategies, I believe, that will help you avoid pride. So this is all happening in the eighth year, like all of it. Right. It, it's building. Great contention. Um, hearts are set upon vain <clears throat> things. They're being scornful one towards another. Um, they're persecuting those that didn't believe. <laughs> Like, this is not good. Not good at all. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting a recipe for disaster here. Right. And and it says that, you know, the, the contentions, uh, the envyings, the strife, and the malice, the persecutions, and the pride, it even exceeded the pride of those who did not belong to the church of God. So... Uh, not very good. <laughs> then in verse 10... Um, the wickedness of the church was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to the church. And thus the church began to fail in its progress. And that's starting to happen the end of the eighth year timeline wise. And now we're going into the ninth year. <laughs> okay. So I'm just keeping up with the timeline here. I, I like that you you're doing that because it's important to know that these things don't happen overnight, right. but they can happen within a relatively short amount of time, almost yeah. surprisingly short. Yeah. You're like, you got, it's not even been 10 years mm -hmm. since you had Mosiah. Everyone, everyone living right now, certainly, you know, above the age of accountability, uh, was. New Mosiah. Yeah, he knew Mosiah and, and, and heard what he had to say. So. What were you going to say? I was just going to say now starting in the ninth year, Alma is like, man, I'm going to put this in <laughs> Shelby words. Okay. Is like, man, I got to do something about this. Yes. Because it's getting, it's bad. It Like Kevin just said in the verse before that he read, I mean, the church is beginning to fail uh, because this is such a stumbling block. People are seeing this. And they're like, well, I don't want to be associated with a church like that, mm -hmm. being prideful like that, hurting other people like that. And so Alma's like, I I got to do something. <laughs> got to do something and I got to do something quick. I mean, they're turning away. This is, Verse 12 blew my mind. I'm going to read it. And he saw great inequality among the people. Some lifting themselves up with their pride, despising others, turning their backs upon the needy and the naked and those who are hungry and those, excuse me, and those who are thirst and those who are sick and afflicted. I mean, they're just like completely not even acknowledging they're going, this spiritual status of these people are just not in good standing is how I would put it. Um, and so it's, it's a cause of great lamentation among the people because they should have been imparting substance to the poor and feeding hungry and all those things right well As and, used to. and the lamentations among the people are are the people who were doing the right things you know they're it says abasing themselves which i think means like humbling themselves uh, succoring those who stood in need of their sucker imp imparting their substance to the poor needy so there, there are a lot of people who they recognize what's going on, but maybe they don't really know how to, what to do about it. 
And I think we, that, that really represents a lot of us today where we're doing the best we can. We see the world turning toward iniquity and wickedness, but we don't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they do all of these things. We know that they're righteous, that they are doing these things for Christ's sake who should come according to the spirit of prophecy, looking forward to that day, thus retaining a remission of their sins, being filled with great joy because of the resurrection of the dead, according to the will and power and deliverance of Jesus Christ from the bands of death. So there are, there are strong church members at this time. This is not full out apostasy, um, which yeah, that is, just teaches us what we should be doing when we see these things. Right. In our day. And then some among us are called to do what Alma is about to do, um, which is, you know, I, I liken it to a full-time mission, um, which is it's probably on par with like apostle or general authority status. Mm-hmm. In verse 15, now it came to pass that Alma, having seen the afflictions of the humble followers of God and the persecutions which were heaped upon them by the remainder of his people and seeing all their inequality, began to be very sorrowful. Nevertheless, the spirit of the Lord did not fail him. (laughs) I got so fired up when I read that. We got more fist pumps going on here. Because Alma has had so many experiences in which he was strengthened by the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so when he's sorrowful in any situation, whether he's going up to battle against the Amlicites and the Lamanites, or whether he's sitting in the judgment seat trying to figure out how best to work out some political nonsense, or he's here as the high priest over the people trying to figure out how do I, how do I help the spiritual welfare of these people, of my people, mm-hmm. he obviously turned to the Lord. He didn't say, okay, well, I guess I got to do, I got to do something. You know, I've got to um, do it all myself. Right. right. He selected a wise man who was among the elders of the church, gave him power according to the voice of the people that he might have, power to enact laws according to the laws which had been given and put them in force according to the wickedness and the crimes of the people. So he's surrendering his position as chief judge to a man who he believes um, is a, is a just man, a righteous man who do the job well. But just know he did do it according to the voice of the people. Yes. He didn't just say, I'm going to ignore what you say and just put him in place. He basically, I would say in terms of an election was held and the voice of the people did approve it. Yeah. And, you know, instead of maybe, I I guess we could liken this to, you know, when a, I hate to use the word politician because that's such a loaded term, but Alma, if he were called a politician, when he decides to step down, he um, gave, well, probably nominates, but also he like, he sponsors or, or uh, what's, what's the term that they use? They endorse, right? Mm -hmm. He endorsed this guy, Nephi Ha. Mm -hmm. And he was appointed chief judge. Alma did not, grant him the office of being high priest over the church. He retained that office, uh, which office he got from the hand of his father. Right. Mm-hmm. And in verse 19, Shelb, at any point, if you want to jump in, please do. But mm-hmm. he, uh, he did all this, that he himself might go forth among the people, his people even. Uh, the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them to, one, stir them up in 
remembrance of their duty, that he might, too, pull down by the word of God all the pride and craftness and all the contentions were among his people. Um, apparently seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. <laughs> so I love talking about what a testimony is. Mm. Kevin can tell you that because it's something I have studied a lot. Um, cause I think too often we, we give think, think ammonies. Um, and I want to make this connection right here if I can, because Alma sees that there's just no way, but it, but by the bearing down of pure testimony. So that's got to be pretty dang powerful. Okay. So I just want to read from the student manual and it, it's a, it's a little bit lengthy. Um, but I, I think it's so important that you note and we see, and even when I say you see, I also mean I see because I have to remind myself sometimes what a pure testimony is. Um, pure testimony invites the spirit and bears witness to people when it's, when it's born in, in pure testimony. So I want to read what Elder M. Russell Ballard said in the Book of Mormon Student Manual. So he says, simply stated, testimony, real testimony, born of the Spirit and confirmed by the Holy Ghost, changes lives. It changes how you think and what you do. It changes what you say. It affects every priority you set and every choice you make. So he says, my experience throughout the church leads me to worry that too many members testimonies linger on I am thankful and I love and too few are able to say with humble but sincere clarity I know as a result our meetings sometimes lack the testimony rich spiritual underpinnings that stir the soul and have meaningful positive impact on the lives of all those who hear them our testimony meetings need to be more centered on the savior the doctrines of the gospel the blessings of the restoration and the teachings of the scriptures. We need to replace stories, travelogues, lecture and lectures with pure testimonies. To bear testimony is to bear witness by the power of the Holy Ghost to make a solemn declaration of truth based on a personal knowledge or belief. I'm almost done y'all. Clear declaration of truth makes a difference in people's lives. That is what changes hearts. That is what the Holy Ghost can confirm in the hearts of God's children. There's more, but I'm going to stop there. A testimony is just a simple statement of what you know to be true because you learned it by the Holy Ghost and the Spirit. Confirm that to you. An example of that is, here's a testimony of mine, is I know that going to the temple is God's house, and I can receive power and strength there. Just a very simple statement. And I guarantee that if you were listening to that, because the scriptures say so, the spirit bore witness to you too, that the temple is a power of strength. And so that is what a testimony is. Try next time you bear a testimony to only use the words I know. And see what happens. What are the things you know to be true about the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I know Kevin has some thoughts. So go ahead, Kev. Um, first of all, I want to bear testimony of everything that you said. <laughs> Russell and Ballard said. <laughs> and everything that Russell and Ballard said. and Or M. Russell Ballard, Ballard right? Yeah, sorry. And... Um, so we've got two witnesses there. I want to add not only my witness, but the witness of my mission president, President Colton. The very first day in the mission field, we got in, we showed up at the mission home, uh, had interviews with the president, had a little dinner, and then we settled down for kind of some training. And something he said 
was uh, he defined pure testimony in his words. He said, it's founded on your love for your heavenly father, faith in the redemptive power of the savior and the restoration through the prophet Joseph. And I know that, you know, what, what elder Ballard said is more all encompassing and it, it, it definitely, you know, it was a talk, right? Um, but I just, I felt that that was so important for me to write down. I flipped open to the very first, uh, one of the first pages in my planner. It says how to use this planner. <laughs> and there's a big open white spot at the bottom. And in every single planner throughout my whole mission, I wrote that definition of pure testimony. And I don't, I don't necessarily even know why. You know, I, I don't know why it was, it impressed me so much that I, every time I cracked open a new planner, um, I wrote it. And I think it's just a reminder that, you know, my testimony as a full-time missionary should not be focused on my personal experiences. Like, you know, of course I can, I can use those experiences to liken you know, or, or like, or to, to promote faith in others, but I'm not going and teaching the first lesson and talking all about me and all about the things that I've done or the things that I'm really grateful for. I'm teaching true doctrine mm -hmm. and inviting people to make changes and, and act. And have you know, those experiences for themselves to 100%. build their own testimonies. Because I could sit here and have said how I know, how I came to know those things were true, right? About the temple being a place of strength for me and that it's God's house. Um, but that's, that's not, I love that because what I did was I just focused it on Heavenly Father and I didn't necessarily share my experience. Now, someone might come up after my testimony asked me, well, how did you obtain that testimony? And then I can share about a really hard time in my life when the temple was just five minutes up the road. And that was the only place I seemed to find comfort during this trial, right? Like that's that's something different. And, and it's okay to maybe share that, but, but just very briefly in a testimony, don't go on and on. Don't focus so much on the story as you need to be focusing on the principle and the doctrine behind it that you've found to be true, you because, know, because it's different to teach a lesson mm -hmm. and, and um, then bear testimony right. during the lesson and throughout the lesson. Um, but a testimony meaning is just sharing what you know to be true. You're not up there teaching a lesson. And, and like elder Ballard and, and like we said, um, there's something really, powerful in the testimony it's it it gives the holy ghost an opportunity to then add his witness mm -hmm. which is really what confirms changes and changes people's uh thoughts which is why alma sees that it's the only thing <laughs> that can reclaim the wickedness that's happening in the land and he, he talks about it later as well in verse seven or in chapter seven. Um, but he couldn't do that when he was in the judgment seat. He had too much going on, uh, too many worldly um, and, and, you know, government affairs and jobs. Right. So last verse, verse 20 here in chapter four. Um, Alma delivered up the judgment seat to Nephi, Nephi, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he confined himself wholly to the high priesthood of the holy order of God, to the testimony of the word, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy. And this begins, uh, an incredible section of the book of Mormon. The, the next several, maybe even dozen chapters of just hardcore missionary 
scriptures and and uh, stories, and I'm so excited to be here in the Book of Mormon now. Yeah. So next week we're going to come back with Alma chapter five. It is a very lengthy chapter, mm-hmm. sixty two verses. So just depending on how Kevin and I feel about reading it. I mean, maybe it's possible to get through all of it next week. Maybe it's not. Um, we'll keep you all updated when we welcome you all in the next episode. That's right. <laughs> but be studying Alma chapter five this week. Um, and then we'll come back and we're going to see the adventure of Alma, the high priest, going about um, calling really men to repentance. So it's going to be great. We have a lot to learn from this. So I can't wait. Yeah, I'm excited. Anyway. Well, we'll see y'all next week. And as always, if there's anything you want to add to the conversation or say or have opinions, reach out to us. We welcome them and we don't get them very often. So when we do, we're very happy and excited. So, yep. All right, y'all. Bye. Bye.